to Learn It Located at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Who really owns the ground under our feet and, and why does land ownership matter? In his latest book, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World, Simon Winchester explores our relationship to land from geology and map making to zoning laws and conservation, plus the issues of appropriation and exploitation and stewardship and restoration. It's published by Harper, and I'm very pleased that it brings Simon Winchester to our show now. Welcome. Well, thank you very much indeed. Lovely to be here. Land ownership encompasses nearly every facet of life. How did you set about researching such a vast topic? Well, it all began when I came back from Hong Kong in, what, 97, when the Chinese took back control of what had been a British colony. And I bought a little cottage up in um, Dutchess County, New York. In Wasik. Um, the Wasik, the last stop on the Metro North's Harlem line. It's all yeah, Absolutely. And well, although when I bought it, Dover Plains was the last stop, but then they extended it to nothing to do with me, but they did, and I was delighted. And um, so I bought this little cottage, and it had a garden, but it was surrounded by a bigger chunk of land, which was used by a plumber called Mr. Luria, who lived in the Bronx, and he would come up each autumn to hunt for presumably deer. And he was a very kind man, and he used to leave me a cooler with venison and a, usually a bottle of cognac. And um, then, after about two or three years, he knocked on my front door and said, look, he, he was just paying, paying the taxes on this piece of land, and he didn't think it was affordable for him to continue to do that. <coughs> So would, would I like to buy the land? And the price was very reasonable, and so I did. So I now owned about 130 acres of pretty useless land, unless, unless you're a deer hunter. And um, it was mostly on the north sloping face of a mountain, had a couple of little streams, lots of trees, lots of very attractive oaks and hickory and tulip trees and things like that. And it was, it was lovely to look at, but useless in terms of agriculture. So I kept it, and um, it didn't seem, other than a tax burden, to be enormously important until 2011, when I became a citizen of this country. Mm. And then I, my attitude towards this land really changed rather dramatically, because it seemed to me that, I mean, I very much loved the United States, loved now being a citizen, and loved the fact that I was quite literally invested in the country, in that I owned a chunk, chunk of it. So I began then visiting it more often. By then I had sold the little cottage, but I'd kept the land, moved to where I am now, which is up in Berkshire County in Massachusetts. And um, so I'd visit the land and look into its history. And then I realized I owned it and looked at the various deeds, Mr. Luria, who he had bought it from, and back and back and back until we got to the sort of 18th century, when obviously everything was handwritten and old fashioned, but still kept in the archives and then came to this sort of dead end when it suddenly I realized that the people that then occupied the land didn't enjoy or suffer under this concept of ownership. They were the Mohican Indians and they had been, somehow they, their land had been acquired by Dutchmen. First of all, members of the expedition led by Henry Hudson up the river that now bears his name and then subsequently by by English people, colonists. 
And it struck me that this was very odd, that, or at least very interesting, perhaps not so much odd, that the Mohicans, just like the Lenape down where you are and the Iroquois further north, um, had never really had this concept of ownership. But now I did. So what had changed and what was this all about? So I put this idea to my editor down in New York, and she said, yes, that is a good idea for a book, um, but don't restrict it to the United States, because I'm sure the story varies and is, has different shades of nuance in countries all around the world. So make it a sort of worldwide book, thereby, of course, becoming potentially a gigantic subject. So then it was a question of how to sort of corral all of this into a sensible narrative format. And off I went to uh, and researched the book and did a lot of traveling. And, and this, is, this is the result. And um, I find it, I mean, in all these discussions, I find the concept still, the core concept of what is ownership and why did some people choose not to and why do we now choose to own? What does this all mean? To me, well, Native, Native Americans had a very different concept of land ownership than Europeans, uh, and I'm assuming that made it easier for white settlers to displace them. Yes, it certainly did. I mean, they thought, generally speaking, I mean, I dare say there are one or two peoples that had exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, their idea was that you could no more own the land than you could own the breeze or own the ocean. It was just something that was there and you, it looked after you if you looked after it, as the Australian Aboriginals are wont to say, the earth is our mother. You take care of your mother and she will take care of you. The concept of ownership really began, and of course, like so many bad concepts or questionable concepts, it really began in England. And we're so much to blame for everything that went wrong in the world. And one of them is, of course, the idea of ownership, which began in England in the 16th century. But in England, race was not an issue. Here it was. The, uh, the U.S. government was eager to have settlers move on to land that was inhabited by Native Americans. And, and, and President Lincoln signed the Homestead Act, which allowed settlers to claim lots, provided they lived on the land and improved it. Uh, and it didn't matter whether it was Indian land or not. Uh, this kind of makes Lincoln something of a racist, doesn't it? Well, yes, but back in those days, who wasn't really? I mean, it's, it is quite extraordinary that I dedicate the book to this magnificent looking, and it turns out highly intelligent, sophisticated Ponca chief from, when I say Ponca, I mean, these, they had their lands in Nebraska, what is now Nebraska. He's called Standing Bear. And he was essentially the first Native American to take to, and ultimately to the Supreme Court, um, the notion of what was he in the eyes of the American legal system. And finally, he was declared to be a human being. I mean, up to that point, mm -hmm. legally, Native Americans were not regarded fully as human beings, which allowed for this, for what you've just described, that people, white settlers, could take their lands more or less willy-nilly because of this legal concept, terra nullius, the land is empty, it's empty because it wasn't populated by humans. It was populated by Native Americans who were not humans. And if populated, therefore, only by people who are, might as well be squirrels or groundhogs or whatever, you could take it at will. 
And the weird thing is that the people that did this taking had themselves had their land taken away by what had happened to them in England. And perhaps, I don't want to jump the gun, but should I perhaps explain that now? Sure, no, go explain it. <laughs> well, until sort of 15th and early 16th century in England, land was not owned by individual people. It was owned in common. I mean, the, the commons, the word, still exists today. It was an open is, field system. Yeah, the open field system. So you have a village, let's say in Yorkshire or Wiltshire or Devon or wherever, and you've got 20 or so cottages, and the land that these cottages enclose or which is close to them is an open series of open fields that everyone owns together. And so you graze your cattle on it and you grow your cabbages and you have your pigs and your turnips and you extract a bit of lumber and a few sheep and so forth. And that was the way that Britain and many, many societies in Europe ran their land until the 16th century and some unnamed person, but a somewhat prescient person, realised that with the population increasing and the food supply to feed and nourish all these growing number of people needed to be made more reliable and more efficient. So what more efficient a way would there be than taking this common land, the open field system, which was full of risks because the cattle would trample on the cabbages and the pigs would eat the turnips, the tragedy of the commons, so-called, um, reorganise it so that the land was divided, enclosed by fences or ditches or um, lines of stones or whatever. And one person would own this tract and he would keep his cattle there and another person would keep that tract and he would raise wheat there. And all of a sudden, land started to be become enclosed. And those who weren't lucky enough in the lottery, as it were, dispossessed now no longer had the right to grow their turnips or whatever, um, and they left. And once this enclosures practice had become codified and sanctioned by Parliament, and that was the first such act was oddly enough in a village in Dorset where I went to school, a village called Radipole. In 1604, Parliament said, with the full authority of the House of Commons, this land in Radipole shall be enclosed. And here is a bill which they can attack to the local church door. People can read it. If they object, they can write and complain. But if not, then the land after 30 days or three months or whatever will be enclosed. And so the consequence was exactly as I've described. People now, a small number owned the land and a lot of people were dispossessed and they drifted to the cities, which even though the Industrial Revolution really hadn't kicked off, that wouldn't happen until the 1770s, um, cities were starting to expand and people from the country came to Manchester and Birmingham and Liverpool and so on, or Bristol, or they went overseas to seek their fortune where this practice hadn't, uh, of dispossessing them hadn't occurred. But, and this is the central irony, they went over imbued with this idea of ownership, we can own land, we thought, because that's what we do in England now, came to, let's say, the American colonies, saw 
terra nullius, because yes, there might be people, but they weren't really people. We can take their land and dispossess them. So it's the classic example of a, someone who was bullied at school becoming a bully himself. These were dispossessed people, came across the Atlantic or Australia and New Zealand and dispossessed the people he met. So it's the beginning of a, 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 a cycle of dispossession. And it continued uh, into the, well, the 19th century, at least, the, the, with the highland clearances. Weren't thousands of Scottish people violently forced from their homes in the early 19th century? Most certainly were. I mean, it's a tragic part of these two social movements, clearances up in Scotland and enclosures in England, in, in, in Scotland, and particularly in the far north. Um, I mean, the, the particularly the most villainous person so far as today's Scots are concerned was the first Duke of Sutherland, who was an Englishman, to add to the, <laughs> the feeling that the Scots have towards this man, who um, married into the family of the Countess of Sutherland in this gigantic Italianate castle at a place called Dunrobin Castle in Golspey on the coast. And the, it was the biggest estate in Europe at the time. All of the north of Scotland was owned by the Sutherlands. And the way that they earned their money was from the rent from thousands of tenant farmers, crofters as they were called. And these crofters lived in modest, usually thatched cottages in this pretty pitiless environment of the far, far northern Scottish moorland. And they had a few cattle and a few acres and they grew in subsistence farming effectively. Well, the price of wool was on the increase. And once again, the population in England was growing and people needed meat. And so the Duke, a sort of canny fellow economically, said far better to take all these people's land and throw the people out and replace them with sheep. And there was born this policy of the Highland clearances. And yes. there was a particular factor, an agent for the Duke, known as Patrick Seller, a very, very clever lawyer, as it happened, who went on horseback with a team of burly Highlanders from Croft to Croft to Croft to Croft and said to them, you've got 30 days to get out. And these were people who had lived, as their parents and grandparents before them had lived, blameless lives, harmless, happy lives, really, if somewhat impoverished. They were now told for no good reason that they had to leave. And these burly Highlanders would throw them out. They would set fire to their roofs and they would pull them from their beds and say, out, you're going to be replaced by sheep. Is so, it reasonable to assert that uh, enclosure was a key factor in the foundation of modern capitalism? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's a central to capitalism because once you own land, once you do what community owners didn't do and what Native Americans and Aboriginals and Maoris didn't do, once you owned it, then you can take it to the bank. You can say, I own 100 acres in Ohio or Nebraska or Scotland or wherever, and that can be surety for you to lend me the money to buy a tractor or a plough or a motor car or a refrigerator. So the notion of ownership is absolutely key to the founding of capitalism. And that's one of the reasons it's so dearly regarded, particularly in this country. I mean, people in other countries may be having a more um, flexible view of land ownership, but in America at the moment, generally speaking anyway, it's slight, somewhat changing and we'll maybe get to that in a moment. But the idea, this is a capitalist economy and at the basis 
I mean, the, the famous line in, in uh, Gone with the Wind, when uh, Scarlett O'Hara's father, riding towards her on his horse right at the beginning of the movie, um, and she's looking miserable because her love life is all shot to hell. And he, she's, what's wrong, Scarlett? Well, I don't know, everything's gone pear-shaped and I am going to um, sell Tara. And he bridles and he says, you cannot sell Tara because land is the only thing worth living for, the only thing worth fighting for, the only thing worth dying for, because land is the only thing that lasts. And this idea central to the capitalist system in this country. My guest on today's Let It Low Pit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Simon Winchester, whose latest book is Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. It's published by Harper. And in a way, a return to your roots because you studied geology. Uh, you have most famous for books that were about very different, well, at least one that was a very different subject, the New York Times bestseller, The Professor and the Madman about the uh, the writing of the Oxford English Dictionary. Yes, so that was honestly a long time ago now, 23 yes. years ago, and written in the little cottage in Wasaic before the railway line went to Wasaic, yes. Doesn't private ownership of land necessitate a need to establish borders? Is that something um, that goes back pretty far? Uh, the, the process of delineating borders began, didn't it, during the, the Bronze Age? prehistoric times? I'm completely fascinated by borders in a very sort of nerdy way. I mean, borders, boundaries, frontiers, big or small. And, and indeed, you're absolutely right. The, the first border, as far as anthropologists, um, or boundary, as far as they can see, probably was delineated in the Bronze Age, four or 5,000 years ago, probably in southern England. And if you imagine, I mean, this goes back to the time when farming began, that people ceased being nomads and settled down and discovered, I mean, it sounds terribly elementary today, but you, you use a fire-hardened stick to dig a little hole in the ground and you sprinkle some seeds and lo and behold, if you water them and there's sufficient sunshine, it becomes a plant, which you can either eat or there's a fruit or something. And if you put these holes in a line, a furrow, then you can have a lot of plants all in a line which will provide enough food for you and your family. And maybe you can even sell or barter some and consequently your standard of living will enhance a little. So the idea of creating furrows is central to a particular subgroup of early Britons known as the Deverell Rimbury group, known for a particular type of pottery shard. So they dug furrows or made furrows. And so thinking of, let's say, two farmers who know each other and they live maybe a quarter of a mile apart. And one of them is digging his furrows in a north-south direction. And the other one, maybe his, he's on a hillside, he makes his furrows along the contour lines. So they may be not going north-south, but maybe going sort of northwest-southeast direction. And you'll come to a point where the two sets of furrows meet rather like ripples from two stones thrown into a lake. They meet, and at the, that point, to delineate one set of furrows from the other, the farmers cooperatively agree to put a line of stones or a, some twigs or maybe a fence, maybe a hedge, maybe some form of indication 
that the land is delineated and that'll survive them probably so it'll become their children and it will be the boundary between two farmers and then two farms and then expanding this idea boundaries then surround villages or counties or prefectures or countries in due course or nations or political blocks and so this the origin of you you have to know if you're going to possess land you absolutely have to know in law where it begins and ends you can't just say i'd like that land up to the mountains you've got to say exactly where it begins and ends and i think the process probably began in wiltshire in the Bronze Age, as you say. And complicating this are points of unconformity, differences in terrain or disparate farming techniques between two pieces of farmland uh, that creates natural boundaries. You, you write, that would lead in time to the making of borders, not just between individual people, but between villages, between towns, between counties and prefectures, between states, between nations, and then uh, lead to land surveys and maps. Yes, uh, and so I, I write a lot in the opening chapters of this book about how you make maps and how and the basis for making really good maps, which you need nowadays to accurately delineate where land begins and ends, and so ownership can be properly written down on the deed. You need to know very elemental things like how big is our planet exactly, mm. and. You know, we all know from school that I think who was it, Eratosthenes, roughly or pretty accurately, considering it was so many thousands of years ago, by measuring the angle of the sun at noon down a well in Alexandria and another well in uh, Aswan in uh, southern Egypt, was able to say that the earth was whatever it is, 40,000 kilometers circumference, roughly. And he got it nearly right, but not right enough. And um, from modern uh, geodesists and surveyors. And it took this remarkable man, Struva, who's long forgotten, and I find him absolutely fascinating. Friedrich um, von Struva. Indeed. He was an astronomer. Um, he was an astronomer, very famous as an astronomer. But he was selected by, I think it was Tsar Nicholas I. He lived in Estonia, which was then part of the Russian Empire, um, to measure the circumference diameter of the world. And to do that, um, you have to measure with extraordinary accuracy the length of a meridian, and then you can, you know, a quarter meridian or whatever. So he chose the meridian of about 25 degrees east of Greenwich. So that runs from roughly the town of Hammerfest in northern Norway down to uh, Odessa on the Black Sea. And so he got the most sophisticated um, theodolites and... Um, various devices for measuring angles and looking at things very distant from where you placed your theodolite and measuring how far away they were. And teams of men armed with things called Gunter's chains were exactly at a certain temperature, exactly a certain length. And using the principle of triangles, which once again we know from school, set out to measure the exact length of this meridian, which passed through, or at least today it passes through, 10 countries. So very briefly, what he would do is he would say, we're going to um, measure from this point in, let's say, in the forests in Latvia, where I went and had a look, and there's a piece of granite, and you put an X, and you say, this precise point, don't deviate by even a millimeter from it, 
we're going to build a tower over it, which is taller than the trees that surround it, and haul this enormous theodolite, which sort of weighs a quarter of a ton, up to the top of it and then sight it on some other distant point and measure the angles. First of all, measure a baseline using these chains and then the angles from which you can compute the other uh, lines, lengths of them. And from that, doing it time and time and time and time again, you can measure the length of the it, hammerfest. It took him four decades done. to finally do it, to years. complete his work in 1855. Basically, what he was doing was uh, calculating the length of a quarter meridian pole to equator and then simply multiplying by four. And got it right to within, uh, I think it was sort of 500 meters or something. I yeah. mean, he got the Earth the size of it brilliantly accurately. I mean, almost as accurately as today using satellites and GPS and all the other electronic devices that um, we have been gifted. So for that, for what, 150 years, that measurement of the size of the Earth remained all measured by this man who has been forgotten except that about 20 years ago, someone in the woods in Latvia or Estonia found one of these points with an X chiseled mm. into it, wondered what it was, said, we must find others. And they found 250 of them and decided that this was such a monumental entity that they must be memorialized. And so now the United Nations has called it a World Heritage Site. And you can go and see these preserved stones in the middle of nowhere, but which are a memorial to an extraordinary piece of surveying. Had he been financed by Tsar Alexander I to, to do this? He was, and indeed his successor, both of whom were very keen on astronomy, on funding science. They were, I mean, we tend to think of, of the Russian Tsars as being sort of rather decadent uh, and weak people like the final Nicholas. But no, back in the 19th century, the early 19th century, there were some very wise men and scientifically very munificent, which is a, a great thing. I'm staying in Russia, uh, and this is a slightly different topic. How was the uh, collectivized land of the Stalinist Russia dealt with uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, you mean today? I mean, I, I yeah, because we were talking earlier about uh, common lands and uh, collectivized lands. In a way, were the same sort of thing, and then suddenly uh, ownership is reintroduced into the the society. And we're talking about within our lifetime. Many people within lifetime. our lifetime. I mean, I, I went to the Ukraine where this tragic series of events happened in the early nineteen thirties, and. Uh, now this wonderful, this black, black earth, so, so rich, as they say, in appearance that you think, why bother to pass vegetables through it? You could just eat it. It looks so good. And, you know, it's literally the breadbasket of modern Russia and uh, extraordinarily fertile. And it has to be said, every town I went to now, yes, there will be a monument to the millions that died during the 1930s of this cruel near genocide. I think 14 countries today regard what happened as having been literally a genocide by the Russians of the Ukrainians. But now they're as happy as Larry because they have their land back and it's much more efficiently run. There isn't a, a hint of collectivized farming going on. There are lots of not small farms, but and equally not the kind of gigantic industrial farms that you see in Kansas and Iowa today. These are decent sized farms with 
happy farmers producing lots of good food and making the Ukraine, generally speaking, a pretty contented part of the world. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Lots of land under starry skies above Don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze Before I uh, return to my conversation with Simon Winchester I, I need to take a few minutes to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to play your part in keeping this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number is 516-620-3602 or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or, or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, if you go to England, Simon Winchester's um, country of origin, you have to pay a license fee to keep the BBC going, whether you listen to it or watch it or not. But we only ask the people who listen to the station to support us. And I'm delighted that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World, by my guest, Simon Winchester. But whatever level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. When you call 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org, you'll be supporting the only 100% listener-funded station on the New York radio dial, the only one that doesn't rely on grants or corporate sponsorship of any kind. We depend totally on you, our listeners, to keep us going. It may be a crazy model, but it's great to only have to answer to our listeners. And, and I can say in all honesty that you are the best boss I've ever had. Don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the station, thank you very much. And now I return to my guest, Simon Winchester, whose latest book is Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. It's published by Harper. How many uh, borders are there in the world? I think it's... 317. It's either that or 371. I think... You say 317 in the book, yeah. Good. Well, that's uh, a relief. And so many of them... And many Sorry. of them are, are formed by natural divides, such as mountains or bodies of water. But what about the others? Well, one particularly tragic one that I focus on um, stems, I suppose, largely from the time I spent in India. I lived in India for a few years in the, um, what was it, the mid-70s. And um, the border between India and Pakistan, what was originally West Pakistan, um, 
is it's an extraordinary story. I, I actually, when I took up the job, I was working for the Guardian, and I actually drove my car from London to Delhi, where I was going to be based. And so the car, back in the days when it was a relatively easy journey, went through Europe, crossed the Bosporus, Turkey, Iran, cross into Afghanistan, go down that big U-shaped road, Herat, Kandahar, Kabul, then through the Khyber Pass, which is very romantic, now into Pakistan. And ultimately you cross between Lahore in Pakistan and Amritsar in India, and then you enter India, and then it was straight shot down to Delhi and my new home. Well, that was a relatively easy journey back then. And the crossing, I would then have to do the crossing at a place called Wagga, W-A-G-A-H, at least once every six months. And um, I liked it. I always remember there was an enormously fat man who ran a hotel in Amritsar and in India, and he would sit on his lawn chair, and I would stay at his little inn, and you'd say, oh, Simon, you're going tomorrow to uh, Pakistan. There you can get imported British biscuits. So mm. would you kindly get me a case of Peak Freen's lemon puffs? <laughs> I would go to Pakistan, buy these lemon puffs, and bring them back to a man who should not have eaten a single lemon puff in his life. He weighed about 400 pounds. But anyway, that's merely to tell you how easy it was to get back and forth across that border. The origins of that border are extraordinarily poignant. Mountbatten, the last viceroy, the last British viceroy of India, um, wanted India to be, become independent as one country. And that's what Gandhi wanted. That's what the British government wanted. But Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who, who um, was the head of the Muslim League, said, no, no, we need a separate country for the Muslims. And it's to be called... Pakistan, which is uh, an acronym, Punjab, Afghan, blah, blah. Anyway, we need West Pakistan in um, in the Punjab and East Pakistan in Bengal. East Pakistan, of course, eventually would become Bangladesh. So to concentrate for the moment on the division of West Pakistan. Um, Mount wait, Bersen, wait, wait, wait. Could I stop you for a second? Was yeah. this the only time that a country was uh, physically divided by another country? Oh, not at all. I mean, we, the British, divided Ireland into North and South Ireland. Oh. One might Yeah, but there wasn't a, a, something in the middle between the two. No, I mean, that's, I believe that is unique. I mean, it, yeah. it's very odd to have a, a new country that's actually two entities hmm. run from one capital. I mean, no wonder the eastern one, Bangladesh, eventually said, this is ridiculous. Why should Bengalis be run by Punjabis? very different people, simply same religion, and they broke away. And there was a civil war, which I covered, the first war I ever covered in 71, and it became um, it became Bangladesh. However, it, it, just to go back to the creation of the border between West Pakistan and India, Mountbatten didn't really know what to do, but he knew one mild-mannered Welsh lawyer, a very meticulous man in London called Sir Cyril Radcliffe, and the two of them, had, I think Radcliffe was the head of war information or something. And he rang him up and said, look, we've got a bit of a problem here. I'd like you to draw the border through Western India to create a new country called Pakistan. Radcliffe had never been to India and he'd never been east of Paris, as it happens. So he flew over. He thought this was an interesting thing to do. 
and um, more or less immediately fell ill with what is courteously called Delhi Belly, from which he actually never recovered during the following six weeks. And he was given a house up in the relative cool of the Himalayan foothills in Simla, and a staff of four people, none of whom would talk to each other, because they were different religions and they, at the time, hated each other. And he was given some maps and some demographic information, how many Muslims in this village, how many Hindus in that village. And using his Parker fountain pen, he drew a line on these maps for 1,700 miles. Hmm. And that would be the new boundary. And he finished his work and... He went down to Delhi and gave the maps to Mountbatten and they promulgated them officially. And 15th of August, that was the beginning of, of independence. And then in their millions, Hindus left Pakistan for the, mm. quote, safety of India. Muslims left for the, quote, safety of, of Pakistan. And as they crossed this new made line, they attacked each other with unbelievable ferocity. And they reckon to this day that two million people died in crossing the line that Sir Radcliffe had, had drawn. And he was unbelievably, as you might imagine, upset by what he had created and um, burned all his notes, refused to accept the fee that had been offered to do this piece of cartography and went back to London a broken man. And the consequence now is this borderline between two countries, India and Pakistan, which have been to war with each other four times since independence, and they're now nuclear-armed nations. Hmm. Um, the line and the is, creation of Bangladesh, as you point out, a, a, another country as a result of all of these tensions. But this wasn't the only war that you covered. Weren't you once imprisoned by Argentina for being a suspected spy when you were covering the Falkland Islands? Well, th that, that's true, yes. Um, but I didn't think there was much to but, do with land there. I was just No, but it had to do with British long... imperialism. Uh, <laughs> and uh, imperialism set bo created borders all over the world, on uh, pretty much every continent, which strikes me as, uh, you know, kind of, well, Europe really... Uh, screwing up the the world in many cases. Uh, can we talk a bit about the United States and uh, and Canada? Uh, uh, it's often been the the border between the U.S. and Canada has often been described as the longest undefended border on the planet. Although, in reality, isn't there a lot of electronic surveillance on the border? There is so much, and of course, it came to public notice a bit when refugees were trying to get out, if you remember, and going over ditches in the middle of the snowy forests trying to get in, into Canada. Yes, I mean, it's it's a fascinating border. There's a, it it um, extends from what, Cape Grand Manan Island, Campobello, um, in, uh, between Maine and New Brunswick, it's a wiggly line there through New England and then around the Great Lakes. And then it becomes die straight as it goes all the way to Vancouver. And of course, there's another die straight north-south line between the Yukon and Alaska. And I'm always intrigued by that line because I don't mean to sort of put you in a difficult position, but I often say to people, do you know where the treaty was signed that created that border between the Yukon and Alaska, and it was signed in St. Petersburg, because then, of course, um, 
between the British and the Russians, because at the time, Alaska was Russian and the Yukon was British. So the old treaty documents are written in, in English and in Russian. However, that's now, by the by. The one, one section of the border the, between the U.S. and Canada is based on a physical barrier, the St. Lawrence River, which separates right. upstate New York from Ontario. But what about the Great Lakes? Wasn't there a, a line drawn through the middle of the Great Lakes to separate the U.S. <laughs> and Canada? As, as you're cutting across one of the lakes, you are crossing into another country? And you then isn't there a could. library in Vermont where the international border runs through the lending room? Absolutely. And the Americans particularly these days, and, and there's a billiard room also with the line going through the table so you can pot a ball from the United States and place it in a pocket uh. which is in Ontario or something. And now, unfortunately, the, the American government, the Canadians are a bit more informal about this, but there's one town in northern Vermont where if you walk on the wrong sidewalk um, and the BDI of the American Immigration Service sees you and realizes that you're a Canadian, but you're walking on the American sidewalk, they'll get have a major loss of sense of humor about it and send you packing. So they're very sensitive about it. But what I was particularly interested in were the mistakes that are occasionally made. And one of them, a spectacular mistake, is just to the west of Lake Superior, where when they did the original surveys in the middle of the 19th century, they thought in those days that the Mississippi River um, rose in Lake of the Woods, which is this big lake in, um, in, in Ontario and Manitoba. And because of that, it was too technical to go into, they, um, they said the American border therefore must go through the Lake of the Woods, which they hadn't really got the shape of. Anyway, the result of that all was that they resurveyed it, found that Mississippi actually rises down in Minnesota, but it left a piece of America marooned inside Canada. And so to go to this place, which is called Angle Inlet, you have to drive through Northern Minnesota, turn left a bit, cross into Canada, into Manitoba, drive maybe 50 miles North, turn right on a dirt road, and eventually, 30 or 40 miles along, nothing else, no towns or anything, you will come to a hut with an American flag. You go in the hut and there's a little television monitor and a telephone. And you are required by law to pick up the telephone and hold your passport up to the television set. And some immigration official in Washington, D.C. or Duluth, I don't know where, will read it, take your details and allow you in. And you, I mean, there's no nothing worth seeing in there. There's a town of about 150 people, but um, and it's mainly used for fishing during the summertime. But it's just one of those oddities, much like the billiard table and the library and the and the sidewalks in, in Vermont, only much more inconvenient for the people that live there. Why are the largest private land holdings mostly in Australia? Well, because the land there is so unpeopled and there's so little water that you have to have vast estates if you're going to have any meaningful economical way of running your cattle or your sheep. Um, and in the case of the world's biggest landowner, in her case, she's called Gina Reinhardt, and she uses the land that she owns, 29 million acres of it, um, mainly for mining, because as you well know, Australia is essentially 
a gigantic quarry for the economy of China, coal being produced, iron ore being mined, the whole country being torn up to keep the car factories and the refrigerator factories of China humming away. So the Australians currently now feeling rather grumpy about all of that. But Gina Reinhardt has profited mightily from this and has got this vast amount of land. But there are pretty big landholders in America as well, and the biggest yeah, of all but, is. But we'll get to that in a second. Gina yes, Reinhardt okay. donates significantly to organizations that promote client climate science skepticism. There is that. that You're apply? talking about Gina Reinhardt, yes. Yes. No, she's not... Um, a friend to the tree-hugging community, I forgot to say. No, she's, um, I've come across her once because there, I had to give a talk once on this amazing ship called The World, which is not a cruise ship. It's people that own these huge apartments on it. And he goes wandering around the world. And um, Judge Judy, you'll know her, mm. she owns one of the apartments. And the biggest of all the apartments um, is owned by Gina Reinhardt, who occasionally goes over for two or three weeks to get away from her responsibilities um, promoting anti-climate change propaganda in Australia. Well, no, she's a very, very rich is, woman. Climate change is affecting the borders uh, of countries and I assume land ownership as well. My guest is Simon Winchester, whose latest book is called Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. You were about to mention uh, the American who owns the most land. Isn't it a man named John Malone? It is. The two of them jockey, the other being uh, Ted Turner. So both television moguls, if that word can still be used, CNN, and um, I forget which one, uh, John Malone is. But he owns an awful lot of land in Ireland as well. He's very keen on racehorses, and so he owns studs over there. But he owns about a little over 2 million acres, whereas mm. Ted Turner is just about 2 million even. Um, and they're sort of chest bumping, um, having bragging rights, these two for who owns the most. Um, Ted Turner, to his credit, has um, received accolades from a number of wildlife people because he's done much to reintroduce the bison, the buffalo, to the American West. Same can't quite be said for John Malone, he owns a lot of Maine, a lot of the forests up in Maine. And the Maine Natural Resources Council, I think, is slightly apprehensive of what he might have, what his intentions are for the land holdings he has there. But thus far, nothing particularly bad has happened to them. However, in my book, there are a couple of villains of this story, the big, big landowners. And if you're curious, to know who the big fellows are. There's a quarterly magazine published inevitably, I suppose, in Texas called The Land Report, full of the most amazingly glossy advertisements mm. for huge ranches for sale, mainly in the American West. And they have a list each quarter of the top 100 American landowners. Um, and the people who are creeping rapidly up the list is the extraordinary couple called the Wilkes brothers, Dan and Farris Wilkes. And they come from far west Texas. And they are, and I mean no disrespect to their beliefs, but they are very much evangelical Christians. And they, like Gina Reinhardt, they do not believe in climate change and that sort of thing. And no guesses for who they supported for the last presidential race. They had a fracking company and it was bought out about 
six or seven years ago by the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund for $4 billion, meaning that each of these two young men got $2 billion in cash, which they then went on this immense shopping spree, buying up land. And they bought up, I think, about three quarters of a million acres in Idaho and Colorado and Wyoming, the beautiful parts of the American West. And the crucial thing, which neither um, Ted Turner nor John Malone do, is that they prohibit people from trespassing on it. I mean, trespass is a big thing in America anyway. What about they, you? Do you allow people to, uh, to go hunting on your land? Absolutely. And in fact, take it further than that. They can go on for any purpose they like as long as they behave themselves you can't set <laughs> fires or we, we're, we're pretty much at we're pretty much out of time but i was wondering since climate change has come up uh how, how much is that eliminating land uh, because of rising sea levels well in this country very slowly we've lost about thirteen thousand acres from the east coast in the last decade that's trivial but whole countries are beginning to disappear tuvalu and kiribati in the pacific bangladesh that we were talking about earlier and indeed, the New Zealand government is now giving refugee status to people who are losing their land in the South Pacific because of rising sea levels. So the old idea that land is immutable, it's never going to fly away, as Trollope put it, it's the only thing that lasts, as Scarlett O'Hara's father said, is no longer true. Land is very mutable thanks to the rising sea level. It's not going to be there forever. Now, New Mexico Representative Deb Halland has been nominated to serve as the first Native American cabinet secretary to head the Interior Department. If she's confirmed, do you think it'll make any difference in our attitude towards land ownership in this country? One would hope so. I mean, we here in, I'm the moderator of this little town in Western Massachusetts, and we make it clear that at every town meeting, yes, we begin it with the Pledge of Allegiance, but also get everyone to stand for 30 seconds or so to remember the Native Americans who used to be on this piece of territory, the Mohicans in our case. And this is being adopted, and it's a practice very common in New Zealand and Australia today, remembering that we are guests in this country, guests of the people who were the original inhabitants. And so the fact that Deb Holland is, she's from the Southwest Pueblo Indians, um, is on board, if indeed she's confirmed, I think is a wonderful indication that maybe very slowly our attitude to Native Americans, remembering that 40% of Americans currently don't believe there are any surviving Native Americans in this country. Oh tens of thousands of Cherokee and Choctaw and Ponca and Southwest Pueblo Indians. So they there exist. was a book called The Last of the Mohicans. Indeed, right, right. <laughs> So, yes, I think it's a very positive sign, and I'm very hopeful that things may slowly change. But just as with climate change, it's, it's incremental, it, bit by bit. In that case, not for very good things. And in terms of the Native Americans, I think good things could happen. Simon Winchester has been my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large. His latest book, follow-up to his bestsellers, The Professor and the Madman and The Map That Changed the World, is Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. It's published by Harper. It's been such a great pleasure talking with you. And so good to be with you again. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. 
and to my live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of their valuable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you will find links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on a program or just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative deep dives into one subject for the full hour that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., discussions of the sort that we just had, I hope that you will go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this 100% listener-funded community radio station alive. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. They're listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show. $10, $15, $20, as long as you want, and then you can cancel at any time. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show, that means right now, in fact, will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, this fascinating book, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World by my guest, Simon Winchester. There's a lot more in the book that we could not get to, all fascinating stuff. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up now to show your support for Leonard Lopate at Large and the station that brings it to you. So I hope that you will make that call right now to 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org to sign up to become a BAI buddy or just a regular member. Please join us again on Monday when James Erskine and Michelle Smith will discuss the new documentary about Billie Holiday, and we will also listen to some of Lady Day's most important recordings. Have a great weekend.